Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey everybody, my name is Drew Horning. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Today we have Errol Sennel. Errol, will you introduce yourself? Yeah, most definitely. As Drew said, my name is Errol and I am a father of two kids, Isaac and Natalie. They are phenomenal little, little beings and they are my purpose in this world. I'm also an avid cyclist, runner and hiker, and I'm a director of product development uh, at Fidelity Investments that I've been doing for quite a long time now. Additionally, um, I did the process two years ago this month. So I believe two days ago would have been when I graduated from when we're recording right now. An anniversary of sorts, Errol. Yeah. And um, what do you, if you could bottom line your takeaway, what, what's your takeaway from the process? Oh, I would say that the biggest takeaway is that the experience itself just gives you such a robust suite of tools to be more present and aware of what's going on in your own mind. Um, And that there's a lot of grace that's needed leaving the process um, because you are going to stumble at times. And these past two years, have been a process of errors, um, reversions. However, it's those tools that have allowed me to continue to grow during that time. So if we're looking at this, it's kind of like an EKG chart. You know, yeah, there's the big highs and lows. However, you're, sl- you're slightly over time going up and to the right, which is, which is my big takeaway from this. And now I'm, I feel like I'm in a really good spot because of what happened during that period. Your your post process has has not been an easy one. It's been bumpy. It's been tough, to say the least. Um, Can you describe a little bit of what happened? Sure. Um, so I would say when emotionally, from a maturity standpoint, I entered the process not necessarily knowing how to be a mature and emotional person. And then I learned all these things out about myself and I had these tools. So intellectually, I got it. It made sense. However, emotionally, I was still, there was still that person who was there prior. So I needed that time to integrate it. And unfortunately, I made some really bad decisions um, when I left initially because I didn't feel like I was going to be able to grow as the person I wanted to. Uh, can you share some of those if if that's okay? I, I can because I think it's something that's important for people to hear. Um, you know, within a few weeks of leaving, I actually separated from my wife because I wasn't the energy that I wasn't able to control was being sucked from me. You go back into the situation that you were at prior, and I just didn't handle that well. So intellectually I had the tools and I thought I was using them the right way, but I wasn't. And the dark side said that you can't 
do this unless you do that. And I made some errors. Um, so getting separated was not necessarily my intention in any of this. Um, however, it's a byproduct of learning something new and not necessarily completely understanding how to integrate it with balance. Um, and that took time. Um, I know not everyone goes through the same situation, but I think it's reflective of how, how far, how immature I was heading into the experience. And, and um, Errol, you don't say immature in any sort of pejorative way. There's a, I sense kindness when you reflect on your emotional immaturity. Is that, is yeah. that true? Um, it's, it's not a pejorative at all. I think that we are, we're all at where we're at and we all have all of these different building blocks that we've been building upon for the decades that we've been alive. Um, my prior experience to Hoffman was just to a point where I didn't necessarily know how to be an emotionally a well-integrated person, I guess, is the best way to do it. Um, however, you know, I, I, because I didn't have the tools, and then I pick up the tools all of a sudden, but then you have to figure out how to use those tools in real life. And, you know, it's like the first time you pick up a hammer, you're going to bash your, your thumb a few times when you're hammering in a nail until eventually you learn not to. And I think that it's very much the same in the same vein as you know, picking up these emotional tools to get through these hard points. You're, you're trying to use them the right way. You just don't quite know exactly how to use them. So you hit your thumb a few times. And, you know, as I continue to use them over the past two years, you know, right now I swing a hammer pretty well. However, it was getting through that initial period that unfortunately was just very messy. Yeah. So when you, if we fast forward the timeline with your wife, you end up getting separated. Do you end up getting divorced? Uh, we do. We end up getting divorced and I'm glad she did that for herself. So the separation was my idea. The divorce was her idea. And in retrospect, you know, looking at this through, a level of empathy that I've only developed over the past month now. Um, I did a lot of internal work uh, just on my own uh, about a month ago, and it took about two weeks to really pinpoint what was still hanging on there. Why couldn't I let go? So, Errol, talk to us about those two weeks, because oftentimes we have a tendency to move through the messy middle. What were those two weeks like for you as you were navigating this struggle, this journey you were on? So those two weeks weren't necessarily heavier than normal, but there was a different level of awareness about how I was feeling about things. I mean, this is a woman who I love deeply, yet I did things during that period that I carried so much guilt for, and it was still lingering. And I was wondering why. And you know, I would think about it while I was out on my runs, you know, what's going on here? And then I'd walk away from it for a little bit. I would think about it when I was, 
you know, it would come to mind while I was working or out for a bike ride or, you know, sitting there with the kids. It's like, you know, what, what's, what's just kind of lingering there until eventually I just, I sat down with it for a few minutes and this was right before a counseling session actually. And I was just trying to think through my thoughts because I wanted to get into this with my counselor and it just started to hit that I had never truly accepted the role or my inability to be there for her emotionally. And that was a very hard thing to accept because, you know, I, I'm a very good provider. I'm a phenomenal father. I have all these high points, but there was just something that I never connected with, with her. And unfortunately that I'm not going to say it was all of the 14 years that we were together, but it was probably a vast majority of it. And that realization that I wasn't there for her and what that caused in the relationship, because everything has an equal and opposite reaction, you know, I put a lot on her and I'm like, well, why aren't you accepting this? Well, all these things like this whole time um, during these two years, I'm like, why isn't she empathizing with my side of this? And it's because I actually never truly empathize with her side. I never put myself squarely in her shoes and thought about what is it like to have a partner who you would do anything for not have that same level of connection with you and how frustrating must that be and how much hurt and instability must that cause that then transfers into all the other components of life, you know, when it comes to affection or sexually or um, conversations or like all these little things that that affected stemmed from this inability to connect emotionally. And then I started to think about, well, what am I still doing with that? And that's affecting relationships that I've had since. Um, Because of my inability to connect emotionally, I'm putting up a barrier. So, Errol, there you are. You're coming out of your therapy session with that awareness, with that understanding. How does that impact what happens next with your ex-wife? So, the second I end the call with... Uh, my counselor, I pick up my phone and I text her, Hey, can we meet for a drink? I just want to apologize. And, you know, she said, yeah. And we sat down. It was really nice. Um, and I just, I said the things that she's been waiting to hear for so long. Such as? Um, I acknowledged, you know, my role in all this besides the, the pejorative components of it, you know, we both had issues that, you know, we inflicted on each other and we pulled away from each other and all that. But the root cause was this lack of emotional connection. And I acknowledged it and I apologized for not seeing her side and not working towards that sooner. And, you know, so I got my part of it out um, through the apology and she, she accepted the apology and she thanked me for it. And then for the rest of the time we were together, you know, she had just the stuff that she wanted to get off her chest, but also talking, she went into talking about her current boyfriend who they've been together for quite a while now. Um, and sh- sharing that she gets what she's been missing from him and 
there was this level of appreciation that she was getting it finally. Like it was sad that I couldn't give it to her, but it was wonderful to hear that she's getting it. Um, and it was kind of at that moment that this really heavy feeling was lifted. It wasn't, it was no longer spite. It was no longer, well, you moved on so quickly. It was no longer this. I truly saw what she was looking at. And I was very thankful that she was able to find what she had been missing for so long, so quickly. It's almost like the universe provided it for her. You know, she did, she did her time in a way and missed out on it for a very long time. And the universe was like, you know what, it's time you're in a place where it's time for you to receive what you need. Um, obviously there's the component where you can only give yourself what you need, but if you choose to enter into a relationship, you need to receive something from that person. And she was receiving the healthy component that she had been missing for so long. It's almost like when you gave her that gift, it in turn gave you the gift of being released and healed by the pain of the divorce. It was amazing. Like it was I'm not going to say it was instantaneous, but like I, I had felt happy for her for finding someone good. However, I had never been able to truly feel that inside. And the second I was able to apologize my, basically, I mean, if we're using the language that we were taught, you know, my spirit finally spoke, <laughs> you know, and it allowed me to do that. And in doing so, my spirit was proud. It's interesting, Arul, because part of why people come to the process is they, uh, some, they use the process to heal their past, something in their childhood, something in their adulthood. They use the process to help heal and in a way rewrite the story of the past. And yet part of what I hear you saying now is that you actually use the process to, in a way, rewrite the story of the future. You know, kind of um, take what you learned in the process and really apply it to your, your, your life. I'd say that's accurate. Um, Cause yeah, you, you try so hard to unpack things and you can only stay in that for so long. Um, one of the, one of the big things that I found myself doing after the process was almost using past experiences as a crutch um, for why I'm not progressing. And I think the power in the story I just told was the ability to use those tools and focus on, like you said, the future, where I want to be. And where I want to be is a place of contentment with myself and a place of happiness for her. Because, I mean, her and I are going to be associated with each other as, as long as our kids are. Co-parenting for life. Right. So I want that story in the future to be happy. And the best thing way you can do that is to figure out what's inhibiting you from being present. And that's really where I think the tools came into play, um, was unlocking the present for myself. So there's something about... Uh, you said using the past as a crutch 
for why you can't step into the present. And so what did you end up? That's a beautiful statement. What, what did you end up doing? At some point it's about accountability. So when I look at what I, the big thing I took away from the process besides tools and awareness was a, you know, a level of understanding of where the, obviously where the patterns come from. And I felt like I carried, I carried the idea that the patterns are why I'm, I'm behaving. And that almost made it not necessarily okay, but it's like, Oh, I understand this. This is where this comes from, but I wasn't necessarily doing anything about it. Um, you know, you would, I would reflect and meditate, but I would, I would still kind of fall into these dark side moments, which, I mean, those are always going to happen. However, I wasn't looking for proactive ways to just completely remove myself. I felt like by focusing on the patterns, they were continuing to remain very present. And so I just took accountability at some point to focus more on being present and living a more authentic life as opposed to continuously looking back and having that influence where I'm at currently. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it was clouding my thoughts a little bit. Um, And it wasn't until like that moment that I had a lot more clarity than I, than I thought that I would have by doing that action, but I'm very thankful that I did it. You know, in, in preparing for this, you shared a couple anecdotes um, and I, you know, I was surprised and, uh, in a way inspired by the anecdotes and the humbleness you talk about wanting to bike across the country and what happened as a result of that and wanting to do a half Ironman and what happened with that. So will you share those and why they are important to you? Yeah. Um, so right after Hoffman, I was already in the process of training, uh, for a half Ironman and it, I love the experience. I'm a very good runner. I'm a very good cyclist. Um, I'm a good pool swimmer. Turns out I'm a terrible ocean swimmer. Um, but you know, you go through the whole process of training and you know, you come to race day and I know it's about the journey, not the destination but I never really knew what that meant until that day. So you get there bright and early, you get your bike set up, you get your wetsuit on. Um, you know, it was the morning after uh, a pretty big rainstorm. So the ocean was pretty choppy and murky and jump into it. And <laughs> I'd say within about 400 meters, um, I ate three waves in a row and just started throwing up in the ocean. And it was the scariest, scariest feeling I've ever experienced. Like for the first moment in my life, I actually felt like I was going to die. Like it was a really surreal experience. Um, So swim over, grab onto uh, the paddleboard um, lifeguard that's there. And like, you know what? Mentally it, it shot me. Um, so my, 
my attempt at a half Ironman was toast before I could even get to the, the bike and the run that I'm really good at. Um, and part of that was I, I didn't respect the ocean. Um, I didn't do an ocean swim prior. So that's my own, that's my own fault. And I completely have to wear that. I should have, should have done more there. But after I left, um, you know, you walk back to, to the athlete area and, you know, get the wetsuit off. And the whole time I'm thinking, I'm like, you know what, this, this really isn't, I'm not feeling as bad as I thought I would. Um, cause in the past, like as an athlete, you know, when I would run marathons or half marathons and I wouldn't get the time I wanted, I would beat myself up. What could I have done differently? Whatnot. And some reason, and maybe being right out of the process, it just, I didn't have the same reaction. It was like, okay, that moment happened. Well, what can, what can I learn from it? What can I do to build off of this? Um, so the, the ride was in, uh, uh, Southern Maine, Old Orchard Beach or the, the half Ironman. Um, and on the drive home, it was about an hour. I just kind of resolved to myself, well, I trained for this. I'm going to go finish it when I get home. So I get home, throw on my kit, uh, get the bike out and I go for, I do the, the ride miles and then I go for the run and I add on the extra distance that I would have done for the swim and I completed it. And there was something very comforting. I felt such a wonderful sense of accomplishment personally. Like obviously it would have been nice to complete the course, but you know what? I, I don't think I would have learned nearly as much if I didn't fail like that. And then it was my reaction to not completing it or having, having events go the way they did that, you know what? I wasn't embarrassed. I was happy with how I handled it. Everything just, it felt right. And I attribute a lot of that to the ability to, sur to surrender to certain things that, that the process taught me. That's beautiful. And then the, the, the net, I love your reaction to your reaction you have your reaction and then you, uh, the meaning you made of it was this piece of surrender. Beautiful. And then what was the next one? So just being who I am, I, I don't know if it's like a, a hero complex or something, but I really want to do big things um, or just set big goals that seem kind of outlandish. Um, so just a few months later, I'm out for a bike ride and I'm like, you know what? I really want to ride my bike cross country. I, I feel like it would be this wonderful, almost like hero's journey where you break yourself, you push yourself to the limit. I wanted to do it over a 20 day span, which is exceptionally daunting. It's about, you know, anywhere from 150 to 160 miles on most days going across the mountains. Like, man, I would learn so much about myself as if, I needed some kind of outside impetus to do that. Um, so I, I talked to a buddy um, who runs the High Fives Foundation out in Truckee, uh, California. Great dude. And we link up and there's another dude who just reached out to him saying that he wanted to do something similar to commemorate his son who had unfortunately passed away uh, a year or two prior. Um, so we start to plan this big thing. We plan and we plan and we plan. We get some really phenomenal sponsors on board, um, you know, raised some terrific money. I was, so from beginning of raising money to 
that May. So it was really like three months, you know, raised like $21,000 for them. And it's, that's a wonderful feeling. But the one thing that I didn't do, and this was, you know, going back to what I was talking about earlier when it came to emotionally connecting is I told her what I wanted to do. And then I planned what I wanted to do, but I never really checked in to see how did she feel about this? And I never, and when I did, I didn't really listen because she gave me cues and clues that she wasn't happy with it, but she never overtly said, no, you can't do this. It was more, oh, you have to figure these things out if you want to do this. And, you know, I was trying to do that until eventually in May, um, cause it would involve watching my daughter, uh, for the time that I would be on the road. She just said, well, you have, well, you have to figure out what to do with my daughter. Cause I can't put my life on hold while you go and do this. And initially it's like, oh, come on, really? You couldn't tell me this earlier, but she had been, I just hadn't been listening. Um, and I just kind of try to put myself in her situation. I just realized, you know what? She doesn't owe me anything anymore. You know, at that point we're working towards divorce, you know, we're going through the process and she doesn't have to put up with the fact that I'm not listening to her and what she needs. She might've reacted very differently if I had included her in on this process and made her felt heard. Maybe she wouldn't know if it doesn't matter. But the fact that I wasn't listening was just a continuation of the way I had been for so long. And it actually opened my eyes a lot more to the fact that, you know what, I, I am missing something here. And it, yes, it took me another year to really come to the conclusion that I did or to uncover that, that we talked, what we were speaking about earlier with apologizing for not being there emotionally. Um, but that was a moment where I did have that empathy and I didn't really get mad because um, I got it. I understood. And I realized that that ride couldn't happen at this point in my life. So I just tried to turn to turn to gratitude and be like, okay, well, I was able to raise a lot of money. Um, that's one thing. The fact that I was involved with this helped to gain momentum behind the ride so that um, the ride could still happen for Price. So Price was the other rider. Um, and he was able to fulfill his dream of riding cross-country to remember his son. So it's like you could find the gratitude in those moments, which, which helps to make them better. But it was like that first moment of awareness, like, you know, it's sad that it take, takes so long to do that, but I'm glad it's, it was able to maybe even serve as like a launching point to the thoughts that happened early, just a, a couple weeks ago. I'm struck as you tell the story, the way in which you learned outside of your marriage after it was over, you are talking about, um, you know, Thomas More in his book, Care of the Soul, talks about false humility. And what I notice in talking with you, you have this nice, comfortable confidence with yourself, but you also have real humility. There's no false humility here. You're acknowledging these, these painful moments of learning after you were divorced. It's, there's a humbleness to it. Do you feel that? I do feel it. I, you know, I think there were some moments of false humility in there though, not in what we're talking about today, but along the way, um, where you almost kind of trick yourself 
And I think that's where the dark side kind of steps in and he's playing games with you a little bit. Um, but I think it's being aware that, that, that that's happening that allows you to get to a point where you are truly humble. Um, the mind's a powerful thing. It is. It is. It is. What's it, uh, what's it like to talk about this stuff? What do you notice as you share it out loud and re-remember it? I'd say the biggest thing is that I'm okay that it all happened. And I'm at a point where I, I'm not necessarily, I don't look back at it negatively. It's, it's nice to be able to be in that space. Um, and it's, it's really easy to account where I would have been if I didn't go through the process. It really would have been more, far more traumatic, far more negative if I hadn't been through the process. One of the big things that I took away is just this ability to kind of roll with things and to learn in the moment a lot differently than prior. And I think that that's, I mean, that's such a gift to be able to look at each moment as a learning experience. And then also using the tools again, allowing each moment to be something that you could just simply be present in. It's like we can walk and chew gum here. So we just need to train ourselves or I just need to train myself to be able to do both. And it's, it's been far more fulfilling in doing so. And I think the only way to do that is to really you know, listen, you, you learn the tools, but then also reach out and listen to people, listen to how they handle situations. And eventually you gleam enough information that you can synthesize different ways to approach that work for you. And I think that's, you know, that's the reason why you guys are doing this podcast is to learn from others. Um, and it's the reason why we all read a ton of books, but it's how do we take those learnings and apply them to being present? that allows us to do and reach like this far greater level of, of capability. I think. What is it about listening for you, Errol, that I know you do your own podcast. So there's something that has you as a, a deep listener, a learner in other people's stories and, and experiences. Yeah. I'd say, I mean, I'm, I'm an introvert. So listening is, has always been a lot easier for me than, than putting myself out there. And I've always been a learner. Like I was a history major and I just love to read. Like I want to know as much as I can about whatever I can get my hands on. But I mean, it's really the whole psychology around listening to someone and hearing their story is always so impactful because I, that's how I learn best is hearing from other people's experiences. And I feel like a lot of us are, are that way. Um, so just not putting my ego out there and just accepting what I'm hearing and never taking anything personally allows me to absorb things and grow in a far different way. And that's, and that's really why I started the podcast that I have. Um, Cause I want to hear what other people have to say, what they've been through and what they have, what goodness they have to share. And then through that, you know, there's plenty of instances where, you, you know, you can learn deeper gratitude. The first time I actually thought about gratitude was from an old podcast I did with this guy, uh, Galen Gifford, who uh, he's a 
former CEO, founder of uh, Big Truck, which is out in California in a Tahoe uh, hat company. And he's talking about gratitude and the way he lives in gratitude. And you know what? To me, that was so freaking foreign. I had never, I was a negative sack prior to Hoffman in many regards. I, I was a little bit of an Eeyore and I get that from my mom, unfortunately. Um, this isn't a, uh, a, I'm not blaming her for it, but it was a trait that, that I was exposed to. And I had heard, you know, Christine would talk about it, but you know, I would never truly heard it from her. But then when I heard it from Galen, it's like, wow, this is just such a different way of living life. And okay, well tell me more about gratitude. So I started thinking about gratitude because I heard it from someone else. Um, and then you hear about it all the time at Hoffman. Um, and then there was just so many other things that people have been through that you can learn from if you just listen. So what does life look like during a COVID-19 for you the rest of the day, the rest of the week? Yeah, uh, life hasn't really changed all that much. Um, I'm very much a silver lining person uh, now. And the second COVID-19 happened, it's like, okay, I can't undo what's going on in this like big circle. Um, when you think about everything that's going on around the country, like I, it's, it's very tragic the way it's impacted health, economy, mental health, you name it, it's super impactful. But in my own small space, it allowed once school shut down, I got to be the homeschooler, uh, for my son. And I got to spend so much time with him and it was wonderful. And I was lucky enough to have a job that gave me the flexibility where I could do that with him. I was already working from home uh, primarily even before uh, COVID. So it, was, it wasn't a big adaptation there, but that extra energy that got to go to him was phenomenal. And I feel like there's just a, a level of closeness that came out of this and appreciation overall um, that we're all starting to learn um, because of what happened. Um, but then from a day-to-day standpoint, you know, I work and then I'm already here. So I, I gained back in, you know, roughly a half hour, 45 minutes of my day with no any commute. So I, I jump out and I'll, I'll go for bike rides. I'll go for walks with the kids during the day. Like, it's been nice in a way. I know that there are a lot of people struggling and I completely empathize with, with their their situation. I'm very grateful for the situation that me and my family are in, however. Errol, I am I am grateful for your time and for this conversation today. Thank you. Drew, thank you. This has been a pleasure and thank you for the care that you've handled it. You're welcome. And um, we'll talk to you soon. Right, take care. for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.